I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, the talking VeggieTales carrot. <laughs> and I'm Dean Detlaff, the lonely VeggieTales eggplant. I don't think there is a eggplant or carrot in VeggieTales, and that's really upsetting. It is surprising there's no carrot. Eggplant, I can understand. It's a little off the wall, uh, but a carrot is so average. Yeah, that's true. I mean, VeggieTales is pre-emojis, so the phallic mm. connotations I don't think would have been there. So there's no excuse. But imagine if they were. What a time people would have with that. <laughs> oh my gosh. The impure thoughts of all of the youth group gang. Yeah, now that is evidence for God's divine sovereign hand over all. <laughs> that's true. That is extremely true. Wow. That's the best argument for God I've ever heard. Move over, St. Anselm. <laughs> This one, the VeggieTales <laughs> argument, is the one that you've been missing this whole time. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the veggie, um, more phallic than which no vegetables can be imagined. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Uh, exactly, though, right? Um, cool. Off so to this... a great start for first-time <laughs> listeners, I'm sure. This is how they all are. Um, cool. <laughs> well, uh, besides this weird uh, conversation about VeggieTales, in this episode, you can expect a uh, in-depth conversation about Saint Oscar Romero and um, some of his um, some of his letters that we read. Um, we got a cool uh, a cool exam copy from Orbis Books uh, of a reprint of Oscar Romero's Voice of the Voiceless: The Four Pastoral Letters and Other Statements. Uh, it's a really neat book. I'm glad they reprinted it. It's got a lot of good stuff in there. Um, yeah, tons of good stuff. Um, letter number one, it's great. Letter number two, it's fine. <laughs> letter number three, though, is the one that hits me just right. So we're going to talk about letter number three because it's mostly about unions and violence. And those are the only things that we actually talk about in this podcast. So um, you're in for a real treat. But before we get there, uh, Dean, Dean and I have both picked out a Reddit for one another. And I think we're going to read them and try to answer the world's most pressing questions. That's right. Uh, do you want to go first or me? Uh, you go first, I think. All right. You got it. Uh, this is a short one, but an important one. Um, it is 75% upvoted and it has two upvotes. So how to get that stat? I really don't know, <laughs> but it's a pretty big one. Um, the question is, is lying a sin if you're in a competition reality TV show? And can you give this an example, is an important really quickly, one. Dean, of a, of a reality TV show, a competition reality yeah. TV show? Yeah, of course. Of course I can. Uh, the only one that anyone ever needs to watch, which is Big Brother Canada specifically, um, yeah, okay. is it a sin to lie in Big Brother Canada? Uh-huh. So that's the whole question, huh? There's no text? That's the whole or... one. Oh, okay. That's it. So is it a sin to lie if you are a contestant on Big Brother Canada? Hmm. I think... Ah, oh, geez. Could I see Jesus doing it? Is the, is your approach to this question? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think honestly, I'm going to save us all from some real heartache and not put Jesus in the place of okay. um, of Dane, my favorite Big Brother Canada <laughs> character. Um, Great. I think I'm going to not do that. I think. Um, let's take a virtue ethics approach to this one. Um, oh, let's see. Is so this it... guy's going to an Episcopal church for like three weeks, <laughs> and uh, he's over here talking about virtue ethics? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> Okay, so uh, is it wrong to sin or is it wrong to lie all the time? No, of course not. Sometimes you got to lie because sometimes uh, you could lie and you could do some good things by lying. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in Big Brother, you can lie and do good things. Like um, you can save your your ride or die from going up in the block. You can, um, you know, hide your secret power that you might have. So I think that, yeah, um, a savvy person could, um, from the perspective of virtue ethics, that is to say, um, could be on a reality TV show that is competitive and could lie and not sin. So what do you think, No, that's great. Um, My own answer is is just poison because I've read too many of the comments and my whole brain is in spinning from all these perspectives. Uh, I'll just give you a few of them. Uh, So one guy says, I'd say it's similar to playing cards. If someone says, do you have a pair in the middle of playing poker and you don't tell them, that's fine because it's agreed on before the game. All right. So we're adding some qualifications here. Uh Uh, But the original poster is not satisfied and replies, but maybe a playing playing a game like that should be avoided altogether. Yeah, now that, okay, so you just mentioned I've been going to the Episcopal Church, but uh, as someone who grew up in the Nazarene Church and in the Methodist Church, I got to tell you, that's their approach. That's what their whole situation (laughs) would be. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, uh, you shouldn't play cards whatsoever. So that's (laughs) a bad position, I think. Okay. Yep, I think you're right. I think that's fair. Um, Here's uh, another person who says, so lying for profit? That sounds bad. Okay. Now, (laughs) that's a good point. Uh, In Big Brother, you do win money. I can't remember how, like half a million dollars? Is that right? Uh, Yeah, in the U.S. In Canada, it's only 100,000. Okay. And you also get... um, You get $10,000 worth of groceries. And you get a trip for two. (laughs) And you do get a lot of Skechers. A lot of Skechers shoes. That's right. Yeah. Uh, That's true. That, That person does have a point. You are lying for profit. Hmm. But... I mean, but like, okay, how much profit is it really? I I get it. The person who wins Big Brother, they do get money and groceries and shoes, and that's great for them. But I mean, like, I could barely even remember how much they won. And I would watch the show if they didn't win anything at all. So it's like, you know, from my perspective, the viewer, um, the profit is so kind of outside the equation for me. It doesn't even uh, it doesn't even make a difference. Yeah, but it's the player who's lying. I guess that's true. Um, man, are we bad people for wanting to watch people lie to one another on TV? Oh, well, I know the right community to ask. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, this last person, I think, has it right. They say it's always a sin no matter where you are. Of course, everyone lies and God forgives, but it's still always a sin to lie. And I like this because it's just amount of wiggle room. This is the perfect Catholic response. Uh, yes, of course, it's lying. Definitely, it's lying. But also, I mean, whatever. It'll be fine. Everybody lies. No big yeah. deal. You could just tell your priest about it, and it's like, fine. Yeah, that's why we have them. Yeah, okay. Um, I guess that's okay, too. I think that it's still... Well, I think that my virtue ethics thing still stands, but I get it. Um, telling your priest is is not so bad, either. Yeah, I mean, would Thomas Aquinas lie to win Big Brother? Now that... Yeah, I think he would. I think that he would do that. Great. That's a, a good substitute for would Jesus do it? Yeah. <laughs> Put some distance, removed. though, and I, that's what I need in this. <laughs> All right. Uh, we've solved that one for now. Some provisional answers, at least. Uh, what did you end up finding, Matt? Okay. Okay. Here's a real, here's a big one. Um, I think that we shouldn't get too way down in the specifics of this one, but we can kind of, um, we can talk about it more in the abstract. Um, but here it is. Mm-hmm. Um, this user asks, four hours ago, by the way, can I Great. read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy if I'm a Christian? <laughs> Okay. So I really want to read this book. The thing is, the book does make jokes about and mock religion a little, and essentially operates on the premise that the world is simply just a mistake. The author was an atheist, and while he's not really pushy about it, it does reflect in his writing. I don't believe in that stuff and just want to enjoy the zany story, the characters, and the humor, but I'm not sure if I should or not. I just want to make the right choice, and the advice would be appreciated. Now, before you answer this question, because I'm yeah. certain that you can, here's what I love so much about it. Um, the question is, can I read Hitchhiker's, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy if I'm a Christian? But the setup is like so clear. This person has done a ton of research about what the book is yeah. even about. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, the question is really, is it okay that I did read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Is that fine? Yeah, or you know, maybe they saw the movie, and now mm-hmm. they want to read the book, but they feel, you know, conflicted about it. I don't know. So, Dean, what? how would you answer this question for a young and impressionable uh, teen in your youth group? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, the world will try to throw all kinds of uh, obstacles in your way on the path to holiness, getting closer to God, strengthening your faith. 
Um, and I want to say, uh, really, you should just see it as a test, the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, you should mm. read it as a test, see if your faith is strong enough to pass through all those very funny atheist jokes. And if you can, if you can laugh at an atheist, you're probably pretty good at being a Christian. That's true. Um, good point. You know, the one thing I would suggest, though, <laughs> bring a towel. Okay, so let's talk about Oscar Romero for a minute. Yeah. Okay, yeah, let's. For one minute. It's for the, the shortest for, podcast we've ever done. For 45 minutes, let's talk about St. Oscar Romero. <laughs> so, yeah, this week we're between themes. You know, we finished up the whole um, poetry theme. We talked about Ernesto Cardinal last week because it was sort of timely. And this week we're talking about something that is not timely, well, insofar, it's timely insofar as someone has sent us a book and we decided to read it this week. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so this week we decided, um, because uh, we got this good book from Orbis, uh, that we should talk about St. Oscar Romero. Um, like I said at the be- beginning of the show, um, we uh, we got a, uh, a a copy of the reprint of Voice of the Voiceless, the Four Pastoral Letters and Other Statements, um, and it's a cool book. We've talked about Romero before back on episode 113 with Matt Eisenbrandt, who was, if you recall, a lawyer who worked on a case related to someone involved in Romero's assassination. Um, Spoiler alert, uh, St. Oscar Romero was assassinated. You probably know that already, but um, just throwing it out there. Anyways, it's a great episode. Um, It's a great book. Um, Matt Eisenbrandt's book, Assassination of a Saint, is amazing, and I love it, and it's so cool. So definitely go get that book, get this book, buy all the books, get them all on your desk and your shelf and just definitely read them for sure. All that being the case, though, um, instead of talking about his assassination, this time around, we're going to actually talk about Romero himself. Yeah, uh, Romero, probably the best known Latin American Christian of the 20th century. Um, I don't think I'm saying too much to say that, really. If you don't know who he is, though, here's a short biography. Um, He's born in El Salvador in 1917. He grows up to be a priest, and eventually he is made uh, a bishop. He works in a few different places. Um, meanwhile, as he's going through this kind of religious training, from the 1930s onward, El Salvador has a series of really brutal dictatorships, and the country really becomes a powder keg in the 70s. I mean, there's lots of organizing and unrest before the 70s, but that's a, a kind of high point. And that makes a big difference because in 1977, Romero is appointed the Archbishop of San Salvador, which is the capital of El Salvador, and therefore a pretty influential and prestigious post. Um, For most of his career, Romero was known as a conservative bishop or at least a Christian leader who wouldn't really rock the boat. So the government wasn't really very worried about him being appointed, uh, which is pretty interesting. There's a lot of stuff going on there. There's some politicking about who gets decided to be archbishops and stuff like that uh, all across Latin America, which is really troubling. But anyway, all that to say, Romero was looked at as somebody who wouldn't really cause a a stir. Um, About a month after he becomes archbishop, though, uh, Romero's friend Rutilio Grande, a Jesuit priest who worked with the poor, was murdered. Um, Important to mention Grande, too, because it looks like he's likely going to become a saint. He's on the path to sainthood as well uh, in the Catholic Church. But in any case, Romero had been working really closely with the poor before that, but Grande's assassination is kind of a turning point, and Romero starts speaking out more directly on issues of injustice. He builds a huge following. He broadcasts these sermons on radios. Uh, he draws huge crowds, like so much of the country. There's some estimates that like 75% of like the rural uh people in El Salvador listen on their radios to the sermons, and like nearly half of people in urban areas. So it's very big deal, uh, these sermons. He speaks out against the government, uh, torture and assassinations in these sermons. Um, Importantly, though, Romero also didn't become a Marxist, which is significant because the left was organizing some strong opposition to the government at that time. Um, And then in 1980, Romero gets assassinated while saying mass, and his killers are tied to a guy named Roberto Dallavisone, who's a fascist military leader who was trained by the U.S. at the School of the Americas. Um, He was supported by U.S. officials like Elliot Abrams, if that name sounds familiar to you. He's currently the U.S. Special Envoy to Venezuela. He was, like, wrecked in Congress by Ilan Omar once. Um, So maybe you remember him from that. Uh, In any case, uh, it was a really huge event, this assassination, and it galvanized the country. And Romero was seen as a martyr pretty much immediately around the world. Um, There was also a massacre at Romero's funeral. So it was an extremely politicized event. 
And then that same year in 1980, a civil war started in El Salvador that lasted into the 90s. So Romero is really at kind of the nexus of a ton of uh, intense, extreme politicking on both the right and the left uh, in El Salvador. And he emerges as this kind of people's martyr, people's hero. Yeah, that all is a pretty concise and accurate uh, description. That sounds good. Well, um, after all that, Romero eventually becomes a saint in the Catholic Church in 2018, um, and he was named so by Pope Francis. Um, so St. Oscar Romero, um, that's who we're talking about. And um, I think that the, okay, so the uh, these pastoral letters are really cool because, um, I mean, everyone kind of knows the story, or at least, I mean, a lot of people know the story of his assassination and stuff. And people vaguely know that he's kind of this, like, yeah, you know, leftist or progressive sort of figure in the Catholic Church. But, um, I mean, like Dean said, he was actually a conservative in some ways. Um, reading the letters kind of gives you some some texture to his character and gives you a little bit more in-depth explanation about, like, who this guy is and exactly why he was so influential and interesting and important. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's also, all this, too, gives us kind of like an interesting moment to sort of pause and actually read uh, a voice who is probably far more conservative than most of the other voices that we have on our podcast. Um that being said, uh, St. Romero is not like a reactionary or anything. So there's that. He's uh, just like a really interesting and um, gives well-reasoned and even keel kind of responses to things and something I can really appreciate. Um, okay. So like I said, there are four letters in this book, but we're going to read the third one. And um, the third one is called The Church and Popular Political Organizations. Um, the other three are cool, too. Don't get me wrong. Um, but this one I liked because um, it's kind of about sort of applying um, a lot of the ideas in um, sort of Vatican II, Latin American sort of theology to, um, you know, where the rubber, rubber meets the road. Um, and that's what I'm really interested in. You know, we can talk about salvation and grace and liberation sort of in the abstract, but to hear um, or I guess to read uh, Oscar Romero kind of explaining what these things are actually about and like what they mean in practice. It's, it's good. Um, so in this letter, um, the church and popular political organizations, Oscar Romero is, um, writing this kind of like letter to folks after Pope Paul VI died, which is kind of largely inconsequential for the context of the rest of the letter, but basically it's like offering a lot of uh, Paul VI's um, ideas about the relationship between the church and political organizations and politics in general. Um, and also it has a lot of stuff in here about Vatican II. So a lot of the responses are coming straight from either, yeah, Pope Paul VI or Vatican II. So we'll cite a lot of those things pretty regularly. Um yeah. So overarchingly, though, this is an interesting piece because it talks about like what the relationship is between politics and religion in someone's life and how we should work these out. And um, guess what? That's what our podcast is actually about. So this is a good <laughs> jumping off point for like some bigger conversations about Christianity and the left. Yeah. Um, it's worth maybe saying something, too, about Pope Paul VI. Yeah. Uh, because it contextualizes a little bit what Romero is uh I don't know, kind of soaking up, I guess, some big changes in the church, especially because Romero is a conservative. Um, so uh, Pope Paul VI died in 1978. So that's a year after Romero is named archbishop. Um, so Romero's having this kind of, uh, I don't know how to exactly call it. He's having this big shift, uh, calling out injustice, etc. And then this pope dies. And Pope Paul VI is significant because after um, Pope John XXIII died, who was the pope who started Vatican II, uh, Vatican II automatically closed with that pope's death, and Pope Paul VI reopened the, the council. He was viewed as a progressive guy and a, a reformer within the church. He really opened up a conversation about the church's relationship to the world in particular, um, which is pretty significant because Romero seems to have really taken that kind of call and, and run with it, I think, in a lot of respects. Um, so you can see the figure of Pope Paul VI as a very influential, uh, maybe, way of thinking about what it means to be Catholic in society. Uh, and Romero is obviously impressed by that and uh, trying to figure out what, what Pope Paul VI's ideas would mean in El Salvador. Yeah, totally. 
Okay, well, jumping right in here, um, kind of to start the letter off, uh, Romero just lays out what exactly this letter is about and like what what the true intentions are of the letter. The, the letter itself is not very long. It's a pretty, pretty quick read, but it has so many headings. So um, I'll try to <laughs> be clear about which heading we're kind of going to next. So the very first heading is called Our True Intention. It's nice when someone writes something and they're going to tell you their true intention right off the bat. Not like those. <laughs> That's right. Not like those competitive reality game show contestants who keep their true intentions hidden. Um, Okay, so the true intention of this uh, letter is this. We are concerned about the indifference shown by many urban groups to rule hardship. It seems to be accepted as inevitable that the majority of our people be weighed down by hunger and unemployment. Okay, guess what? Um, People who live in the countryside in El Salvador are poor, and that is bad. Um, And then he goes on to say, um, you know, this letter is about asking, how can we answer the question the Lord put to Cain? What have you done? Listen to the sound of your brother's blood crying out to me from the ground. Um, So that's a a quote from Genesis 410 for all you Bible quizzers out there, in case you didn't know. (laughs) Um, But the uh, kind of contextualizing it around that um, Bible verse, I think is important for the rest of the um, the letter itself, um, asking the question, what have you done? And to listen to your brother's blood crying out are two kind of, um, big Mm. points of the, the letter, right? Um, he talks a lot about, uh, Romero talks a lot about in this letter, um, about, um, institutional sin or structural injustice, however you might kind of frame that in, um, our common social justice warrior sort of parlance. Um, so anyways, you know, these like large, um, structural problems we have in society like racism or sexism or homophobia or, you know, classism or whatever. Um, you know, what have you done? It's like, how are you, um, how are you responding to your participation in these things? That's kind of like the overarching, uh, feel. Um, cool. So then it moves on to kind of contextualizing more about what this is actually going to be all about. Um, and, uh, before they get too far into it though, uh, Romero says that it is his duty to uh, clarify yet again the attitude of the church to human uh, situations that by their nature involve economic, social, and political problems. Um, and he's he's like kind of quoting someone like what someone might say to this type of letter. The church is meddling in politics. Um, and then he, Romero says, we keep hearing this as if it were proof that it had abandoned its mission. So um, he wants to talk about the connection between like, you know, church and politics. How should the church deal with unions and political parties and social justice organizations? Um, how can it do that without kind of coming off, uh, you know, like ringing untrue or or doing it in a way that's meddling or that people might see as meddling or something? So uh, to get at these like big questions about, um, yeah, uh, the connection between Christianity and politics, um, he draws out two themes. Basically, can Christians be a part of a, politi- a popular political organization, like a party or a union or whatever? And uh, what's the deal with violence, as always? Um, you know, the the jump from one to the other is not super um, hard to imagine, um, given it, you know, that it is Latin America in the, in the 70s. Um, to be in a political party might mean, you know, the support of guerrillas or whatever else, um, or, you know, just like, um, insurrection and, and so on. Um, so, you know, political organization to violence are two things that might seem a little bit weird, uh, to, you know, 2020 America brain, but, um, and at the time it makes way more sense. Yeah. I mean, I think the way you laid it out here is really good, uh, especially doing that, um, double kind of, uh, uh, pronged attack maybe, uh, that you root in or that Romero roots anyway, in Genesis 410, the, what have you done? The accusatory side. And then the listen to the sound of your brother's blood, the, um, the side that's supposed to call you into justice. Um, I think that's a really good setup. Uh, and also, I mean, this whole thing makes me think about even the contemporary situation of the Catholic church, you know, so Romero was canonized, uh, in 2018, like we said, not very long ago. Um, and I really feel in many respects, uh, Pope Francis sees himself as a, a Romero kind of Christian. Um, Pope Francis is also not a Marxist, but he's not scared of Marxists. Um, Pope Francis also wants to talk about what to do in the world and injustice, um, but he gets kind of blasted for doing that. He's also thinking about Latin America and the institutions there. So that all strikes me as very similar. Um, The thing that is also very important, though, is locating Romero in his own time and his own geography. Uh, We've said a little bit about El Salvador. One thing that I think sometimes doesn't come up in conversations about Romero 
is uh, everything else that's happening in the air, just even on the continent. So, right, he's he's made Archbishop in 77. So that would, for example, be four years after the coup in Chile, right? So, uh, and everything's popping off all over the, uh, the region in general anyway. So um, I think it's important to view Romero in that kind of context. Like, El Salvador has its own problems, um, no doubt about that, and Romero speaking into those, but it's like to deal with questions of violence and to deal with questions of organizing like parties and unions, uh, those are really seen as two sides of the same coin because uh, without strong political organizations that are popular, uh, you know, people are looking around them and seeing what happens when those kind of things just get bowled over by tanks and stuff. And uh, anyway, I, I think it's helpful to locate Romero um in a political context that is more than just, you know, a, a Christian seeing uh, bad things happening in their country and, and responding. It's like a Christian seeing bad things happening over a whole region and being like, whoa, we better figure this out. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. And, and not just Chile either. Right. Like, you know, Cuba yeah. was not too far in the past. And um, I mean, simultaneously, as this is being written, uh, you know, Nicaragua and the Sandinistas right. are um kind of going through the insurrectionist period or whatever. Right. Um, so, you know, it's all, you're right. You're right to say that it's all popping off. <laughs> um, cool. Well, uh, so the next part is just Oscar Romero kind of explaining um, the larger context that he's talking about when it comes to these, quote, popular organizations. Um, so uh, he kind of starts off with some, yeah, I mean, not, surprising notes. I mean, you could probably get guess at these, but in El Salvador, basically uh, he is kind of thinking about some political parties, some unions, some other types of like advocacy groups that, you know, either get legal recognition or don't get legal recognition or whatever. Um, the legal part is not really Romero's thing, um, but rather he's like more interested in the idea that of the, the type of like practical freedom for people to organize Oscar Romero kind of like, sets up this whole thing about why it's important that people are able to come together in organizations that can advocate for themselves in, in civil society. That's uh, a big part of it too. Um, that they can come together and like voice their concerns peacefully and have the conversations that need to be had. Um, you know, so he's here talking about farm workers unions and like, you know, urban unions as well, but his, his main focus is about like the campesinos, like the lowest of the low, the people who are at the the bottom of the, the social ladder in uh, El Salvador. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of really interesting things to say about this. Um, you know, I being sort of like um, thrown into the labor movement in the last few months, uh, it rings some bells for me as well. Um, Oscar Romero, you know, he doesn't really care about the, the legal stuff, uh, you know, in his case, which I think makes a lot of sense for him because, you know, when it comes to farm workers, like who cares if the government recognizes the, you know, the farm workers as a union or whatever, because they're going to still organize. But in some of our more contemporary examples, like the legal stuff matters a lot and we don't need to go a lot into that. I just wanted to mention it, <laughs> that the legal stuff is actually really important <laughs> for contemporary situations. Yeah. But um, all that to say, um, yeah, Romero is talking about why people should be able to organize. And that is um, a social good that he, that he kind of like finds the ability for individuals to organize is important because it brings them, um, some sort of like sense of dignity, that's for sure. But also because it like contributes to an overarching sense of like practice of democracy in El Salvador that, um, you know, practical freedom for people to organize is basically, you know, how you know you have a functioning democracy. If, if people can't organize into unions or into political parties or whatever, you know, you probably don't have much of a democracy to speak of. So, um, yeah, he, he talks through, um, you know, just why that's kind of important. And I think that's even cool to hear him kind of, you know, like after reading like two other um, two other letters that are like really sort of theological to just see him say like, well, people need to organize because that's part of democracy is like really actually really refreshing. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think so. And it draws out to what I think is so fascinating about politics in Latin America generally is that there is this really interesting um space for like public uh, citizenship and public dialogue that is supposed to contribute to a radical democracy. Like uh, I always think about Venezuela as a place where the, the barrios um, and the, um, 
you know, the the small councils and things like that. It's supposed to be this radical participatory democracy where uh, the communes are formed by neighborhoods and just people getting together with some common interests. And that's the basis of, of government, um, which I think is a really interesting kind of thing. I mean, there's it's sticky and messy, but as an experiment, uh, it just strikes me as very uh, fascinating. And it, it seems like Romero is is kind of uh, foreshadowing things like that or those sort of participatory experiments in democracy. Yeah, I think that's a good example to bring up the participatory democracy of Venezuela and other countries, too, I think are I mean, you know, especially when it comes to Venezuela, people in the United States have such a weird um, set of blinders on, I guess, to like how that actually works out. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to bring those things up and to learn those types of histories. I mean, whether it's in El Salvador or if it's in Venezuela, um, you know, I mean, someday we'll we'll have to have a a more prolonged conversation about democracy. Um, But um, yeah, yeah, I uh, I always think about Jacques Rancière's book, The Hatred of Democracy, um, where he Mm -hmm. kind of lays it out in such a way that you know, a democracy is not something that you either have or you don't, but it's like a degree of which that you have. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's like what what amount of democracy do you have? Not whether or not, you know, it's a stable state or something like that. So right. I think I see a lot of that here, too, in the way that Romero kind of lays it out is that democracy is something that's, you know, kind of fragile, actually. Um, and that if people don't have the right to organize, it is less of a democracy. Um, so, right. Yeah, yeah, I think, too, that all ties in, again, like you were saying, to Romero's place for popular organizations and the emphasis that he places on them um, and how that ties into the church, too. So he has this quote where he says, the issue is how the church should see and perform its particular mission within the process of organization that is now taking place at such speed among the people, primarily among the rural poor. Uh, which I think is really interesting because it's not that um, the church should just have all its own competing organizations, which is Mm -hmm. how the Catholic church responded to things in the past and in many other parts of the world. Um, But rather it should find its way within that process um, because they're popular. Right. And, and that's really significant. Um, I think for us on the podcast, it's sort of, the opposite sometimes like how should churches deal with the lack of organizations or the lack of popular organizing anyway i mean obviously like we think the church should get into unions and that sort of thing but uh that mass scale kind of grassroots democracy piece isn't really uh featuring right now anyway in the u.s and canada in the way that it would have been for someone like romero uh but in any case it's an important point right like seeing the church as intimately part of social movements rather than uh, something that needs to have its own confessional separate social movements is a pretty significant step for somebody like Romero. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the, the you know, drawing out the difference between Romero's situation and ours is actually really funny too, because like, you know, Romero is addressing them because they're popular. He's not just addressing them because he thinks they're important or whatever. I mean, he probably does think that too, but he's, you know, he needs to He's writing a letter about it because they are popular and worth like, you know, spending your time right. talking about. But like, yeah, in, in our situation and we need a we need a Romero that can talk about like the lack of organizations or something or, or like we need someone to help us make them popular again or something in the church. Because, you know, I, just despite some good progressive churches, a lot of them, you know, would never even think about talking about labor or, you know, organizing or whatever. And that sucks. Right. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> well, and in it's the vacuum too, you get all kinds of other like weird, weird Christian monstrosities too, like Christian healthcare or whatever, you know, right. like weird evangelical right. Frankensteins of like half social justice, half like neoliberal shit show. Um, yeah. And that sucks. So maybe if there were, if there were stronger, if we had a st- sort of stronger culture of working, working class politics and organizing, maybe those things would be, I don't know, as bizarre as they should be. Right. Yeah, it's worth noting, too, that this is a a common um, problem in other kind of thickly Catholic societies, like in Quebec. um, Catholicism was the the primary social bond uh, before and then during the Second World War. And uh, I mean, Quebec had a a sort of phase of um, like Catholic fascism, more or less. And within that, uh, there were all, the primary resistance was through explicitly confessional Catholic unions. Um, but as society sort of progressed and eventually uh, as it secularized really rapidly, the church had to rethink 
um, its role in unions and that sort of thing, taking basically Romero's advice here, more or less, uh, that the church should find a place within it rather than set up its own identitarian kind of alternatives, uh, which is interesting. I wrote an article a little while back about uh, the history of Catholic labor strikes in Quebec, and uh, I had spoken with somebody at the Diocese of Montreal about how they view it, and they basically put it this way, you know, that today we just feel like uh, the unions are doing a great job on their own. We don't have to, like, tell them what to do. We just have to show up and try Mm -hmm. to help them out, which is an amazing thing. Like, it would be great if more church people understood their relationship that way. Yeah, for sure. Um, I also think it's really important too that to be, you know, in within the labor movement, like clergy are great. It's great when pastors show up to like a strike and they like, get arrested or whatever. That's awesome. But also for like organizers and everyday like workers, it's probably pretty good just to be like quietly religious in those kind of situations. Yeah, you don't right. need to be like a weird evangelist or whatever. Okay, sorry, <laughs> that's besides the point. So back to the letter. <laughs> um, so okay, right now you're thinking. Well, probably, at least I can't read your mind. Um, so far, Romero sounds awesome. He doesn't sound c- conservative at all. What are you guys talking about? Well, let me tell you. Um, so <laughs> this conversation about politics and religion, um, you know, it, it needs some like sort of guiding principles, Romero thinks. And he says that there are, you know, th- there are three principles by which we can kind of have this conversation about um, politics and religion and sort of the right balance of those two things. And uh, Romero, uh, he he's borrowing stuff from uh, Pope Paul VI and also Vatican II, and he like basically comes up with these like three sort of principles about like what the church is about, sort of just to like um, to to create parameters by which you can have this conversation about how to deal with the combination of church and popular political movements. Um, so this is where the kind of conservatism sort of comes in, and it's not like I don't know. It's not like, re- again, not reactionary. It's maybe conservative is even the wrong word or something. It's traditionalist or something. Yeah. It might be conservative too. Who knows? I, I'm bad at this. But um, so the, the first. It's sort of, conservative in in its own way is maybe the best way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's conservative in its own way um, in the true sense of the word conservative, uh, but not in the yeah. bad sense necessarily. So, um, okay. So the first guiding principle is this. The church is primarily about Jesus. This is a quote here from Romero. Uh, Christ, to be sure, gave his church no proper mission in the political, economic, or social order. The purpose which he set before it is a religious one. But out of this religious mission itself comes a function, a light, and an energy which can serve to structure and consolidate the human community according to divine law. Okay. So this very first... This very first like sort of guiding point here about this conversation is pretty straightforward um, and conservative in the sense that like um, it's trying to conserve a, uh, a traditional understanding of what Christianity is about. It's not uh, it's not a political community. It's a religious one. But that religious community might end up like influencing or guide political action in the future or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like just the language of uh, it can function as he says, a light uh and an energy that can serve to structure and consolidate the human community. Um, the conservative bit, I guess, is the according to the divine law part. Uh, but, you know, whatever. He's a Catholic archbishop. Like, what do you expect? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, the uh, the energy language, I think, is really good, right? Because that's true. I mean, um, one of the great things about uh, spiritual traditions is that they do provide a certain impetus or like a moral thrust or, or, or a, 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 an energy, as he says, a, a kind of animating spirit uh, that sometimes politics has a hard time coming up with on its own. Um, and that's neat, too, right, that you can really be the sort of leaven in the bread or something to use a good Christian metaphor. Yeah, it's actually kind of like what we were talking about last week with Ernesto Cardinal, right? Like um, the, right. Pro- the prophets, they're great. They're going to tell you so many good things about how, you know, woe to your your king or whatever. But like they're not going to tell you what to do when you have a <laughs> like a trade embargo or something on you. Right, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, the second. Yeah, uh... Oh, go ahead. He uh, well, Romero sort of continues on this point a little bit where he says uh, when political vocations appear in the ecclesial community, the church has no special role in determining the specific means to be chosen to achieve a more just society. While respecting the autonomy of politics, it will continue to maintain its own properly ecclesial character as outlined above. 
Uh, so this is, you know, maybe offsetting some of those worries, at least about the divine law piece. Like mm-hmm. if you're participating in politics because of your Christian faith, then that's a concern for you. But um, he's not arguing that uh, the political should be subsumed into, you know, the the religious or something. There's a kind of really intriguing uh, cooperation of powers here. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's also... I don't want to be too negative, but it's also kind of wishful thinking <laughs> like that. You could so easily separate these things out or that you could just be like, you know, we're just going to do our ecclesial community thing over here. Will you guys do politics? And like, maybe they'll kind of influence each other, but like they do a lot. Well, I think that that's kind of what he's saying though, is that uh, it's important to see them as at least sort of analytically separable. Um, mm. That politics has a, a certain autonomy because if it doesn't, then you end up with, Catholic fascism, yeah, <laughs> uh, which is what he's trying to avoid, I think. Um, but he's also attempting to say it doesn't mean that uh, being a Christian has no bearing on your your activity in that sphere, the political sphere, or something like that. Right. Um, I, I yeah, guess that's so. That's yeah. true. It's just hard to it's hard to keep them so separate. And in fact, I agree. Yeah. I'll, I mean, like people on the right for sure don't. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, just like we don't, but that's okay too. Um, okay. Yeah. So the second uh, the second sort of guiding principle is that the church is primarily about Jesus. But uh, in doing that whole Jesus thing, <laughs> it's also about serving the, the people and the poor. Uh, so here's a quote from Romero. It is the role of the church to gather into itself all that is human in the people's cause and struggle above all in the cause of the poor. OK, <laughs> so this is this is where it is like actually pretty complicated, though, because it's, you know, trying to talk about you know, where things ought to be separable, but also there is sort of like a, a guiding principle of what is and is not separable um, when it comes to the entanglement of religion and politics. And that is when it comes to the poor. I also like that idea of the church gathering into itself these things, because again, it's not like gathering it in in order to take it over, um, but so that the church can identify with the poor. So it's the poor end up transforming the church in that respect. Uh, in order to become an institution that speaks on behalf of the poor uh, rather than, you know, they get metabolized by the church or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then finally, the last guiding principle of what the church is about is that it's about liberation and Christian salvation. So if you're reading, if you read the other um, letters before this one, he talks a lot about liberation in other senses. And um the word liberation ends up being kind of tricky because, you know, when I read it with my extremely Marxist Christian lens, I think of something very particular <laughs> um, <laughs> and like fine. But so does Oscar Romero. He thinks of something very particular, too, that liberation is a um, well, I mean, it's a word that has a lot of other meaning bound up in it. Right. In rhetoric, we call this an ideograph. It has a, it's a word that signals to people um, sort of ideologically. But also it's a word that has like so many other ideas bound up in it. It's hard to sort of disentangle them. So liberation in the terms of Romero, um, it means it it means like, you know, that people can't be used as a means to an end that like um, liberation is like about the the whole person, not just like economic, not just social, but also sort of this like whole spiritual aspect, too. That's extremely important. so liberation means uh, having a deep desire and justice in love. It means salvation in Jesus Christ. And it also means excluding violence from your political practice. So liberation for him is this really particular array of sort of like liberating ideas, none, none which sound particularly bad within the context of uh, Oscar Romero and the Catholic Church, but just like he means something that's not like the dictatorship of the proletariat or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that exclusion of violence part also is very significant, right? Because, yes. uh, again, we mentioned before, like, Romero isn't speaking in a vacuum. And like you mentioned, you brought up the Sandinistas earlier, which is great. Uh, a perfect example, because that is not what they thought, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that the idea was that liberation and even Christian salvation as it, it relates to liberation might not exclude violence. It, it may in some cases even uh, unfortunately demand it. So there's a significant difference there. And Romero is no doubt um, speaking with those kinds of things in mind. I mean, it, it would be wrong to maybe read this as like 
a sermon to Ernesto Cardinal, obviously, <laughs> but like um, it's, it's reading or Romero is a uh, writing and, and speaking, knowing that liberation theology is uh, in the air and it doesn't necessarily exclude violence. So he's intervening in that conversation a bit too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we have these three principles out on the table to talk about politics and religion. Uh, you know, that the, the first one is that the church is about Jesus. The second is that the church is about Jesus, but also the poor. And the third is about the, you know, the church is about liberation. So these are the ways in which we kind of have to like negotiate um, what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be involved in quote popular movements. So Dean, um, how would you say that you should apply these principles <laughs> to uh, popular <laughs> movements and uh, the larger conversation about Christianity and politics? Yeah, I feel what a great, super great question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah, you know, one thing that I appreciate about Romero is that even in light of the differences that I have as a person who is a Marxist and and doesn't go out of my way not to be (laughs) like Romero does, is that um, Romero tries really hard to say that politics and faith are separate, but not totally or not absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And he says it here uh, when he's applying these principles, he says, This is where the problem arises. Faith and politics ought to be united in a Christian who has a political vocation, but they are not to be identified. The church wants both dimensions to be present in the total life of a Christian and has emphasized that faith lived out in isolation from life is not true life. Hmm. Um, And then he goes on to say later that faith ought to inspire political action, but not be mistaken for it. Um, This is, I, I think extremely nuanced and and subtle uh, because it cuts both ways, right? That the church wants a Christian to have one foot in the world um, in, in the affairs of the world and really to, to do politics. Um, But the church is also doing its own thing. Like the preaching of the gospel is not necessarily uh, doing politics per se. And I think that's also a a cut against the conservative side where he says uh, faith ought to inspire political action, but not be mistaken for it. Right. Like just going to church isn't politics with all apologies to uh, radical orthodoxy. Um, (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I dig that, you know, like. Like I said, maybe I want to say a little bit more than Romero or something, but I, I can sort of see myself in this advice that, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I have my faith and my politics that are united, but they're not identified. There is a certain um, distance there, and I, I appreciate the distance. It, it allows them to dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that ends up being a pretty big deal for Romero and all of this, too. Um, cool. Yeah, he goes on to say this uh, kind of summing up or maybe elaborating more on that faith ought not to inspire political action bit. Romero says, if they do not bear in mind this distinction between the Christian faith and their political activity, they can fall into two errors. They can substitute for the demands of faith and Christian justice, the demands of a particular political organization, or they can assert that only within a particular organization can one develop the requirements of Christian justice to spring from the faith. So uh, I mean, to clarify, too, in, in some ways, he's talking about like Christian social justice and Christian like labor kind of organizing. But I think it it stands kind of on its own, just regardless that um, there is this sort of fear that if you if you confuse political action and faith that, um, you know, you could say that like well, people only in my group or whatever are real Christians or something sort of like um, I, I can't think of a great example, but still it's it makes sense though right like that um only people who actually go to strikes are actually christians or people who only people who are occupy you know really know what the kingdom of god is going to be like or something and uh yeah i mean like that's uh, in some ways i mean like you know people who are christians should be um should really care about the poor and maybe they should go to strikes but still like you're not like more authentic a christian for, for doing so or something Yeah, I think, too, it plays into how Christianity features in revolutionary societies, because when I was thinking of that quote, I was actually thinking of Cuba in particular, um, where uh, you can't, um, you know, for a long time to be a Christian in Cuba, if you were open about it, meant you couldn't be a member of the Communist Party. But it didn't mean that you didn't support the Communist Party or want it to succeed, and vice versa. Uh, Just because you couldn't be in the party didn't mean that the party 
thought that you were bad or something like that because you were a Christian. Uh, and then when the uh, when that ban was lifted, um, it's the case that now, you know, you can be an openly Catholic communist uh, in Cuba. But it's not the case that if you're outside the party, you're not a Christian or if you're inside the party, you're a true Christian. There's there's more interesting things happening there. And in fact, you can still participate in the revolutionary process whether you're in one or neither of those institutions. And I think that is important to keep track of too, right? That societies are uh, multiple. <laughs> There's lots of pieces inside of them. And uh, I don't know, it's difficult for leftists to, it's difficult for me specifically <laughs> to internalize that lesson, but it's a good one, I think. It's worth uh, sitting with for a bit. Yeah, totally. It is a good lesson. I mean, even in like the the more sort of secular examples though, or like, you know, the the Cuban Revolution, for example, I mean, it's not even like the Communist Party was the one they weren't the vanguard, you know, <laughs> it was, yeah. you know, Fidel right. wasn't even in, right. in the Communist Party. And um, there's this whole, uh, you know, the people, uh, Régis Debray, a pretty famous sort of French, I don't know, <laughs> French guy. <Philosopher>. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who could say he's a French guy, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, he wrote about the he, he was there and kind of like wrote about the Cuban Revolution as it's the revolution within the revolution. It's the, uh, you know, this other sort of like other group that's kind of off to the side that all of a sudden like centers itself. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's um, an interesting and yeah, you're right. Nuanced way to think about those kinds of connections and good. Um, it does make me wonder what someone like Cardinal would say to this, um, yeah. I guess. I mean, presumably Cardinal would probably not say that you have to be a Sandinista to be a Christian. Um, but I guess the answer would be more complicated. I'm not sure. I guess I would just be curious. That's all. Yeah. You know, it would That's be really interesting saying. to put those things in dialogue. Uh, in another section in this um, letter that we're not really going to end up talking about, though, um, he says, uh, Romero says that not all Christians have a political vocation. And I don't know if I mm. like that. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're not going to talk about it, I think. So uh, <laughs> just move right along. Um, okay, so we we have these things, right? So he's kind of using these big ideas, these big theological ideas about what the church is to kind of figure out how it should kind of play into our politics or not play into our politics. Um, and then he kind of goes into this other other kind of bit that is, I think, just as interesting. Um, uh, headed under the title, what can and what cannot be demanded of the church. Um, so these are the things, this is like where the the hard cutoff is, right? Like these things are separable for sure. Um, sometimes it gets kind of hairy, but uh, there are some places where it definitely cannot sort of cross, the, 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 the streams cannot cross. Um, so Romero says this, um, when Christians organize themselves into any sort of association, they ought to be well aware of precisely what belongs to the realm of faith and what to the realm of politics and respect the autonomy of each. That's very difficult. Um, he goes on to say, though, no organization, even if Christian in inspiration or name can, however, require that the church as such be turned into direct means of propaganda for political ends. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> on the one hand, I get it. On the other hand, though, I think that's really hard. If you're going to be on the side of the poor, I don't know how you can kind of escape being propaganda for political ends. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I understand in some respects that like, all right, you can see this happen in extreme cases, even in uh, American politics, which is something I'm more familiar with, where you get like Protestant pastors in certain times during the labor movement basically end up like the church is is solely a vehicle for I don't know, like strikes and stuff. And then eventually the pastor sort of gives up being a pastor and then mm -hmm. they're, they're out, you know? Yeah. Um, I can understand Romero wanting that not to happen in particular. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't know, your church should be propagandist for the poor. <laughs> and <laughs> if, uh, if there are some politics that are for the poor and some that are not, then you, yeah, it's hard to see how you won't end up in that situation. Yeah. It kind of seems like there are some times where, Romero wants to treat the poor as some kind of like other category outside of politics yeah, kind of. And I think right. that sort of sucks. I agree. Because they're not. Because <laughs> class war is real. Yeah, um, I think that's a good way of putting it, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, here's another tough one. A real toughie for you. Um, okay, so another, another heading uh, called Loyalty to the Christian Faith, Romero says... 
that uh, definitive loyalty of a Christian can never be to a human organization, no matter what advantages it may offer, but to God and to the poor, who are the least of the brethren of Jesus Christ. So, I don't know. Like, on the one hand, I don't like this because it's like, well, you should always be on the side of Christians, but that's not exactly what this is saying. This is saying always be on the side of God and the poor, which I can hang with, but, like, you got to spin it a little bit. Right. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know, what if being on the side of the poor means, you know, being part of a a human organization or something? So there we go. Um, Your faith and politics are separable in some places, and you should figure out where that is. And uh, there's a lot of nuance involved in this, and Romero has a lot of ideas that I think are sometimes good and sometimes a little tricky, but I think helpful nonetheless for a, a place to start sort of contemplating that whole question. But the the other question he wants to turn to sort of in the last half of the uh, the letter is that like, okay, popular organizations, they're not bad. Unions, they, if, they, if they help people organize for the common good, they're great. That's something we should support. But <laughs> sometimes these popular organizations use violence to get things done. So what does St. Oscar Romero think about violence? Um, quick spoiler. Here it is. Violence is bad. (laughs) Peace is preferable to war, but violence, as we've talked about in this podcast is also pretty complicated. Um, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. Dean, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the violence bit here? Yeah. I mean, uh, okay. Romero, I think is great. If you're going to be a person who doesn't like violence because he's capable of distinguishing between different types of violence. Mm -hmm. So uh, for example, he pulls out there's institutional violence, there's repressive state power, there's terrorism or, or guerrilla war. There's a spontaneous, spontaneous violence, like at a protest. Um, And these are all sort of uh, forms of violence that uh, Romero is not keen on. He's speaking against those. One that he allows is self-defense because uh, he says that self-defense is justified by the church, which is true in church tradition, Um, which I think is pretty important. Although in doing that, he's careful not to uh, not to let that scale up, I guess, um, in terms of its logic. Uh, But then the last one is nonviolence, which is sort of cheating. But he says uh, this classification to complete the classification of violence, it's only right to include the power of nonviolence which today clearly has its own eager students and followers. And he says the gospel's advice is to turn the other cheek. Um, so it's not exactly violence, but it's a uh, <laughs> within the the, ca- the categories, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've talked about that a lot on the podcast. Maybe not worth rehearsing, but in any case, that's what Romero wants you to think, is that uh, nonviolence is kind of the, the sum of, of this whole logic. Um, what I think is really interesting about this, though, is uh, although he he clearly doesn't want people to commit violence, um, he also, Romero, has a certain nuanced approach to it. He recognizes, first of all, that there's different types of it. Um, and he concludes also saying, uh, so he's going through how you got to really school yourself against violence. But he concludes saying um, in a section marked, use peaceful means first, even in legitimate cases, violence ought to be a last resort. All peaceful means must first be tried. We are living in explosive times, and there's a great need for wisdom and serenity. We extend a fraternal invitation to all, but especially those organizations that are committed to the struggle for justice, to proceed courageously and honorably, always to maintain just objectives, and to make use of nonviolent means of persuasion rather than put all their trust in violence. Um, And again, this is like a very nuanced thing, right? Uh, Romero is finally recognizing that okay, violence is a last resort, but don't go there first. <laughs> to make it a last resort means thinking that it is the very last resort. Um, and I think that that's fair. Like, I can hang with uh, people who are invested in that kind of hesitation toward violence. Um, one that won't ultimately say that it's always definitely for sure necessarily bad, but, mm-hmm. like, it it almost is. So uh, do your best not to do it. Yeah, I think it's good, actually, um, because, you know, the the always bad violence is always bad crowd, too. It's, it's always a race to the like the most pure sort of like right. pure radical politics. And I think that um, ends up being um, more on the side of the oppressors than it is the oppressed. Um, right. But yeah, in his uh, in his bit on self-defense and sort of like the good uses of violence, um, 
or the I guess allowable of uses uh, uses of violence. It is funny because he has like he he relies on a lot of like just war language, and uh, mm-hmm. in in one comment he says that uh, with regards to self defense. Uh, he says that uh, defense does not exceed the degree of unjust aggression. For example, if one can adequately defend oneself with one's hands, then it's wrong to shoot an aggressor. So there's like this real calculus <laughs> of like when, <laughs> when you can, yeah, yeah. you can't like, you know, <laughs> right. use violence. And I appreciate that. I think that is like, just like you said that, right. It's like something you can hang with that as I think at least reasonable rather than just a, a race to the most bloggable post about pacifism. Or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, right. There's also, I mean, uh, it's it's worth noting too that, um, uh, let's see, um, his uh, his take on like state power, I think, is also actually pretty good. Um, he goes back to relying on um, like the importance of democracy when it comes to state power. Um, so so basically, he he ends up saying that um, he says the government ought to strive to make increasingly hypothetical and unreal the situation in which recourse to force by some individuals or group can be justified. So mm-hmm. like, um, th- you should give people like a ton of liberty to kind of like have conversation and dialogue about political problems because if you don't, and if you like you know squash a protest or a strike or whatever, you're like you know you're adding wood to the fire or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. interesting. Like, I guess it's just interesting that he keeps bringing up democracy as, as, as like a sort of really important political value for him. And it's not something I think I would have located before I read this. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, true. I think also reading this uh, this letter through the whole thing just really drives home that uh, Pope Francis really is the Romero Pope, I feel. Hmm. Um, I mean, he really like. Pope Francis is at his very best when he's giving speeches to organizations like trade unions or uh, when he's giving speeches to he even gives uh, he's given addresses to a group of popular movements. Um, and those kinds of things are always where you get the the most incisive kind of Pope Francis stuff, hmm. because I think that's what gets him excited, I guess. Uh, and so much of the language that he uses just feels like it, it is lifted straight out of Romero. Um, he does say that Romero, or, uh, sorry, Pope Francis says that nonviolence is a uh, the style of politics for peace. He thinks that that's the important one. Um, but, you know, it's not like he's changed official Catholic teaching to say violence is always bad. So, again, kind of a, a real sort of Romero spirit, I think. Yeah. Um, well, and since we are always talking about Cuba and how much we like it, I think it is probably important to make one quick note about um, his thoughts on guerrilla warfare. Um, yeah. Just really, really quickly. It's not a huge point. But, um, yeah, he has a in one of the types of uh, the classifications of violence, he lists terrorism and under that is guerrilla war and he's not a fan of it. But his reasoning is kind of interesting. Um, He thinks that guerrilla war specifically is like kind of distasteful because um, because it's not like it's not the people fighting against a, like a tyrant or something. It's instead like a group of people who have retreated away from society and kind of like left a bunch of other people kind of defend for themselves. And I don't think I really buy that in the end because it's a tactic that ends up, mm-hmm. you know, being important in like basically the only way they can win sometimes. But anyways, I think that's an interesting line of argumentation, but it, it kind of tips, you know, tips his hand to kind of tell you what his values are. I think just the same, even though I think yeah. he's kind of off base. Yeah. I mean, it's funny to think of that in the context of Nicaragua in particular, mm-hmm. um, because, at first, the guerrilla war was not very popular among the people, but eventually the Sandinistas found ways for people to participate in the revolution that were not violent or not joining the army, hmm. but were nevertheless associated with the Sandinistas. And a lot of historians view that as like the turning point. Um, so when the FSLN was basically being like, there's a big demonstration that we're hosting here, we're not going to be violent, you should come out, like that is when the sort of evangelistic project really grew. Right. And it was only by virtue of of expanding into a popular movement that the Sandinistas were even capable of surviving, you know, the Contra War. I mean, surviving insofar as they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, like the idea that it sort of starts with a guerrilla conflict um, that represents a real threat and then scales up when it wins popular support. So maybe that throws a certain wrench into Romero or, or maybe it's a mediator between uh, what he thinks about guerrilla warfare and, and popular movements. But anyway, I guess what I'm really saying is uh, I really want to read Romero in the context of Nicaragua. <laughs> That's what I want to do. It's a good project. That's a good essay. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So there you go. Um, popular political organizations, unions, parties, they're great, especially 
actually only when they work towards the uh, common good of the poor. That's Romero's position. Um, Christians, they, you should let your, you know, you should let the sort of preferential option for the poor um, and sort of the, um, you know, the witness of Jesus Christ and all the other saints too, uh, to sort of guide you in political action. But don't get confused about who your allegiances lie, lie with, I guess. <laughs> Jesus and the poor, which sound pretty okay to me. I don't know. Hard to disagree, actually, with that. You could do a lot worse. Yeah, you could do a lot worse. That's true. Um, the very end of the letter is, um, I don't know, it's good. Uh, basically, he kind of just goes through these different segments of Salvadorian society and says, like, you guys should listen to Jesus. Uh, the rich, <laughs> listen to Jesus. Middle class, listen to Jesus. Trade unions, listen to Jesus. Uh, yeah, and like you said, you could do a lot worse. So... Uh, that, that is um, in, I don't know, about 60 minutes, uh, Oscar Romero's third letter, The Church and Popular Political Organizations. So, Dean, really quickly, let's have a VeggieTales moment here. What what right, did you learn? Right. Uh, man, I learned that Oscar Romero loves democracy and uh dang (laughs) loves democracy and has actually maybe some helpful advice for christians trying to sort out their uh dual allegiance to the church and the political some unhelpful advice too but also some some good important challenges to think on yeah i agree um i think that you know when you're talking to people who are like more intensely christian um and not involved in sort of like leftist movements you know they would probably ask you this type of question you know how do you like who are you Mm -hmm. really who you really allied with you know jesus or your union or your party or whatever and i think oscar romero gives us a few diagnostics to help us figure out uh where one ends and the other begins thanks for listening to the magnificast if you like what you heard you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash the magnificast and you should Everybody's doing it, and uh, you you got to be like everybody else. Um, you can also get some merch, Magnificast merch, at redbubble.com slash the Magnificast. There's stickers and shirts and all kind of stuff there. Everybody's getting those. Again, you got to be like everybody else. You're going to look uh, so get dumb that if stuff. you don't. Think about that. You're going to go you to are. school. You're going to be in homeroom, and everyone's going to have this cool Ben Wildflower Magnificast t-shirt, and you're not. And think about how that's going to yep. feel. Oh, it's gonna be everyone bad. except for you and your teacher, and that's not what you want. You don't <laughs> oh. want to look like a teacher, uh, uh, Mr. Richardson. Yeah. You look like him. Yeah, Dork. yeah, with your your flannel and your your pleated pants. Damn, um, it's so cool that we're gonna bully people into buying things. I love that. <laughs> that's the left. Uh, twenty twenty twenty. That's the left. Uh, you can also um, find us all over social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We have an email, themagnificast at gmail.com. Um, and I think that's it. Our music, as always, is by Amoria Armstrong and the Illogical Spoon. See you next week. I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation, never get tired, never bored, don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.